This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Young Chuanosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a few more new dinosaurs. We have three this week. Goodness. Yeah, it's a lot. We have some catching up to do. We also want to thank some of our patrons, like we always do. This week we would like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Dr. Eigenbot, Lori, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, and James Pascoe. And Timmy and James just joined. And James wanted to share that he's an earth science student from Wales. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to everybody who has joined, and we really appreciate all your support. If you want to add to this group of amazing people, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping into the dinosaur news, with all the SVP coverage and interviews that we've been doing, we've fallen a little bit behind on our new dinosaur discoveries. Oops. Yeah, it's easy to do because they come out so rapidly. So the first one I'm going to talk about was published by Sebastian Dahlman and others and published in the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science Bulletin. And it's all about a new ceratopsian dinosaur. This one was found in the Crittenden Formation. I think is how you say it. It's spelled C-R-I-T-T-E-N-D-E-N. So it looked like it was going to be Crittenden, but then there's an N in the middle of it, which makes it really hard to say. So it's like Crittenden. Anyway, it's in southeastern Arizona, and it's from the latest Campanian, which means it's about 72 million years old. And they described this new dinosaur based on two different individuals, but both are only small fragments of the animal and pretty much just the skull at that. So they named it Crittenden Ceratops Krizanowski, and Crittenden Ceratops is obviously from the Crittenden Formation, and then Ceratops, like every Ceratopsian pretty much. So if you want to give it a, a real name, it would be like Crittenden Horned Face is literally what it would translate to. And then Krizanowski is after the late Stan Krizanowski who found Crittenden Ceratops. So aptly named. Crittenden Ceratops is a Nesudoceratopsian, meaning its closest named relatives are Avaceratops and Nesudoceratops. Don't hear that name too often. Eh, yeah, it comes up once in a while. But yeah, that's true. They're definitely lesser known Ceratopsians. 
but really, there's one called the quote-unquote multicentrosaurine, which came out as the closest in their phylogenetics, but it's not named yet. So it's like, who knows what this is going to be called. So Nasutoceratopsia is in the subgroup of Centrosaurinae, and Centrosaurinae is the half of ceratopsians that includes things like Styracosaurus and Diabloceratops and all the other dinosaurs with the really cool frill ornamentation, but they tend not to have the two big brow horns like Triceratops does. So that's kind of the distinction between the Centrosaurinae and the Chasmosaurinae. To summarize, you've got like Ceratopsia as the biggest group, then Centrosaurinae, and then Nasutoceratopsia, and then Crittenden ceratops, because I think it's kind of confusing going through all those different levels. But what makes it really interesting is that it has at least five epiparietal loci, which basically means it's got these big triangular fancy frill ornaments, five on each side of its frill, so like 10 total. And then the triangles on the little edge of the frill are sort of bowed out in the front, if you imagine, kind of like if they were made out of, if they were like sails and there was wind blowing behind the animal and they're like poofing out a little <laughs> bit forward. <laughs> so it looks really cool. Um, there's also really large openings in the frill, like you see in a lot of these ceratopsians. And it actually takes up a lot of the frill, these openings. But the paleo art that came with the paper shows it just seamlessly covered in skin. And that's... One of those things where it keeps the skull lighter, but at the same time it looks bigger. Exactly, yeah. And we've heard paleontologists say a lot in the past that like bone is expensive and like hard to maintain and you have to like eat more to keep it strong and all that. So like anytime you can reduce the amount of bone that you need, I guess is a good thing. And like in our body too, we have... You know, like our arm isn't solid bone. There's a big gap right down the middle of the forearm and it makes things lighter. It also makes things more flexible. It's good. It's good to have these gaps and there isn't like a big weird hole in the middle of our arm. It's just covered in muscle and other stuff. So usually in paleo art, that's one of those things where paleontologists will really <laughs> get upset sometimes when there's like these divots or like missing segments where like there's a hole in the skull or in a bone and it gets like really emphasized in the paleo art because chances are that it was kind of minimized by the actual animal. But back to what they actually found of Crittenden ceratops, they got just a small piece of the back of the jaw, the dentary, and then those little bits of frill and a little bit of sort of the cheek kind of sticks out like the lower part of the frill and then three poorly preserved teeth. And that's it for all they found in two specimens, in two individuals. They described the teeth as typical, so there isn't really anything interesting there. And obviously it's really hard to figure out its size based on just these small fragments of its head. You know, you want something like a femur or at least a vertebra or something, but they recreate it as about three meters or 10 feet long. So pretty small, really. You know, it looked shorter than a person. If you're standing next to it, you could probably lean on the side like a little pony or something, hmm. <laughs> except that it's more like a rhino and it might not like that. But <laughs> because Crittenden ceratops is in the Pseudoceratopsini and it was found pretty far south in Arizona, the authors think that this again shows that they moved pretty freely across Laramidia and that therefore Laramidia wasn't separated into a distinct northern and southern region, which is interesting because we've seen a lot of papers saying the opposite of that lately too. So I guess this is one of the bigger debates going on right now in, in terms of North American paleontology. It's like how freely could these animals move in Laramidia? Because it looks like the Ceratopsians could get around, but maybe the Ceratopsians could just swim a little bit better than other ones and there was something in the way or 
Something about those holes in their frills. <laughs> yeah. They were used like satellite dishes to communicate in long distances. <laughs> they would say, come over here. There's an easy way through. <laughs> Not really. That sounds like a fun sci-fi story. It would be cool, yeah. The next new dinosaur that I want to talk about was published in Global Geology and written by Changfu Zhao and others. And it's really interesting because this dinosaur has actually already been mounted in multiple places. <laughs> so it's been in China for a few years. And then a cast was apparently already mounted in the Frankfurt airport by the time this was described. And that means we either missed it or it wasn't there in 2015 when we went through that airport. Because we definitely would not have, you know, like just walked by a, a big sauropod skeleton without <laughs> saying anything or taking a picture of it. True. So... Like I already said, this is a sauropod, and it has been informally called Leoninga Titan for quite a while, and now it's been officially named Leoninga Titan, so it's nice that they kept the same name. And then the species name is Sinensis. Unfortunately, the whole paper is in Chinese, so I can't really read it yet. Hopefully someday my Chinese will get good enough that I'll be able to read these. But the name is very obvious, so Leoning Titan, Leoninga Titan is obviously after Leoning, which is the northeastern part of China where it's from, plus Titan because it's a titanosaur form. So looks like a titanosaur. Might not quite be titanosaurian, but you know, it's very closely related at least. And then sinensis just means that it's Chinese in case Liaoning didn't give it away. I just threw a sinensis on the end. <laughs> so the reason that the dinosaur was already so popular, I think, is that the skeleton is nearly complete which is amazing because a lot of times with sauropods, you don't get that much material. Does that mean they had the skull? Yes, they did. And the skull, unfortunately, is kind of smashed up, but the rest of the body is a little in a little bit better shape, including the jaw too. The lower jaw, you can see a little bit more detail on it, whereas the skull, it's a lot like many of the dinosaurs from that area in China where they're kind of smashed, but this is just a much bigger one <laughs> than we usually find over there. Yeah, so it's a nearly complete skeleton, which is pretty awesome. I couldn't see exactly all the bones they had, but it looked like they had all the limbs and a lot of the hips and some vertebrae and all that good stuff, and then plus the skull. They describe it as more derived than Brachiosaurus, which isn't too surprising because Brachiosaurus is kind of right on that border of sauropod to titanosauriform, kind of goes back and forth depending on who's looking at it. It's never a real titanosaur or a true titanosaur, but it's sort of heading that way. And then Leoninga Titan still appears to be just outside of true titanosaurs, but it is very close. So I'm wondering if with future analysis, it might sneak in there <laughs> because it's just like one node away on that cladogram. Because it's from the J-hole biota, I can say that it's from the early Cretaceous, about 120 to 130 million years ago, putting it about 20 million years after Brachiosaurus. So again, not too surprising that it's starting to be a little bit more like a titanosaur. And they describe its teeth as spatulate, so it didn't have any sort of denticles or anything. That's pretty common for sauropods. Yes, I think so. They didn't remark on them being anything special. And they didn't recreate its size in the paper, but since its femur is about 1.15 meters or 3 foot 9 inches long, that makes it about half the size of a Brachiosaurus femur. So we're not talking about a huge sauropod. This isn't going to be a contender for like the largest ever or anything like that, which isn't too surprising given its age. But I'm not sure if it was fully grown because it didn't look like they did any histology in this paper. So I don't think they checked its age or its growth or anything like that. 
But we got another really good sauropod. Yay! And then the last new dinosaur that I want to talk about is also a sauropod. And this was written by Kenneth Carpenter in the Geology of the Intermountain West. And it's all sort of about Amphicelius fragilimus. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's a really large one. Yeah, it's often reported as the largest dinosaur ever discovered. It kind of goes back and forth between this one and Argentinosaurus in most, you know, popular media, even though there's a lot of other contenders. Well, both of those, not many bones have been found, right? Very true. So Amphicelius fragilimus was discovered in the 1870s, and it was described as a one and a half meter tall partial back vertebra from a sauropod, which is massive. And then depending on how you recreate its total size, it could be as large as 2.7 meters, which is like eight feet or eight foot something tall just for one single back vertebra, <laughs> which is massive. And when you scale that out, depending on what sort of ratio of vertebra size to length you use, you can get like a 200 foot long sauropod or something ridiculous. And when you do that, people say, you know, it weighs like some massive number of tons and it was twice as big as any other sauropod and things like that. But sadly, this dinosaur vertebra disappeared somewhere during the sale of Cope's collections to the American Museum of Natural History, or maybe even a little earlier. A lot of bones were lost in the bone wars. Yes. Well, this one actually got collected and everything, but it's probably because, you know, that species named Fragilimus, it was named that because it was such a fragile and like delicate bone that it probably just basically fell apart at some point and then got thrown away because Cope had tons of bones and he basically sold his whole collection to the American Museum of Natural History when he went into a bunch of debt later in his life. And he didn't really keep good notes about which bones were which. He didn't number them or anything like that, like we do on modern bones. But it was assigned an American Museum of Natural History catalog number when they bought the fossil, but they never actually saw it. So for a long time, I thought this got lost somewhere in their collection, but really they probably never actually got it because what they did was when the people who were in charge of taking all these massive boxes full of fossils from Cope's collection and introducing them into the American Museum of Natural History collection, they numbered all of them based on sort of what they were supposed to get. And then they would go around and try to find those things. That's crazy. Yeah, it was really difficult. Fortunately, Cope was apparently a very gifted artist, so it was pretty easy for them to match the drawings to the bones as long as they could find them. What would they have done if he couldn't draw? <laughs> I don't know, because like, he wasn't taking pictures. There are some pictures of him with bones, but you know, this is 1800, so there weren't a ton of pictures. And then there are a lot of accounts of people writing letters to Cope, like, we can't find this bone. Do you know where it is? We want this holotype. We have the skull of this one, but we can't find this other one that's supposed to be more complete and all this kind of stuff. And while he was alive, he was giving them little tips about where it could be or, you know, helping them find stuff. But unfortunately, he died before they really got to the dinosaur stuff. So with Amphicelius, it's like there's nobody to ask. You just got to look around and hope you can find it. And nobody ever found it. So we all we have to work from is just basically a single drawing that Cope made of the fossil. And that's where all this speculation about its size comes from. And from that, it was called the largest dinosaur ever discovered. Yeah. And people in the past have sort of questioned that and said, well, you know, we have this drawing and it says that it's 1.5 meters tall. But what if he actually meant that it was like 0.15 meters tall or maybe 1.15 meters tall or something like that? 
but Kenneth Carpenter found some accounts from others at the time calling it about a six foot tall bone. So he found like someone from the geological survey who went over and saw a cope site and was amazed by this vertebra and wrote about it to other people. So it doesn't seem like this is just like some greatly inflated number, but there is another problem with it. And that's that it probably isn't actually an amphicelius. <laughs> so amphicelius fragilimus is not the original amphicelius. Amphicelius atlas was described earlier and that's a diplodocid. So when Cope found this new vertebra, he thought, oh, it looks a lot like this Amphicelius atlas vertebra. I'm going to call it Amphicelius fragilimus, assuming that it's kind of a close relative, which is something that like Thomas Carr would do. You know, you want to sort of add information to the fossil by naming things that look like they're close relatives by using the same genus. But unfortunately for Cope, at the time, there were only like a, a small handful of sauropods known. And he didn't realize that there was this whole other branch of sauropods and all sorts of other complex evolution happening that he just hadn't found yet. So he named these two as if they were really closely related. But really, the reanalysis that Carpenter did found that it should have been a more basal rabacosaurid rather than a diplodocid like Amphicelius. And because Amphicelius atlas was named first, it gets dibs on the Amphicelius genus name. So that means we have to rename Amphicelius fragilimus to something else. And so Carpenter renamed it Marapunisaurus fragilimus. And Marapuni is the southern Ute word for huge. And hmm. that's the tribe that was kind of around in that area before they got shooed off by, you know, the European settlers. Oops. So now officially it's called Marapunisaurus fragilimus and not Amphicelius fragilimus. Still the same bone. Obviously we kept the same species name because there's no reason to replace that. That almost never changes. Yeah, because you can have redundant species names, you just can't have redundant genus names. So yeah, now it's Marapuni fragilimus and not Amphicelius fragilimus. But along with that, the kind of more important thing than just the naming is that when you take it out of the diplodocid group, which are known for those crazy long tails and just kind of overall massive length estimates, it really shrinks the overall size of the dinosaur. And in fact, based on his analysis of these drawings, he thinks that the vertebra would have been 2.4 meters tall instead of 2.7 meters tall, and that the full length of Marapunisaurus would have been about 30.3 to 32 meters or 99 to 105 feet. That is quite large. It's really large, but it's nowhere near the like 200 foot measurement that people have cited before. So it's kind of just bringing it back into a normal sort of size of large sauropod. Normal size, still <laughs> huge. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Patagotitan's like 120 feet. Right. There's other sauropods, tons of other sauropods basically in this sort of length range. So we might finally have an answer to Amphicelius fragilimus and how big it was, but just not where the bone actually ended up. So yeah, even though I called that a new dinosaur, it's really a new dinosaur name of a very, very old dinosaur, a dinosaur that hasn't even been seen in over a century. Next, we've got an interesting court case that came up this week. Well, actually over the last couple of weeks, it unfolded. So there was a doctor in Texas who was arguing that the federal government had taken too long to seize a 70-million-year-old dinosaur skull from his fossil collection. 
The doctor's name is Dr. James Godwin. He's 76 years old. He's an anesthesiologist and a fossil collector. And his dinosaur skull is a Tarbosaurus or Tyrannosaurus skull, depending who you talk to. (laughs) Usually Tarbosaurus. Yeah. (laughs) That came from Mongolia. And as you know, there's been a big crackdown to return fossils that were illegally smuggled out of Mongolia to Mongolia. So... This skull was found sometime between 2000 and 2011. It ended up in a store in Wyoming where Godwin bought it. There's a little more to that story, but just want to lay down the bare facts first. The government seized the fossil in July 2013, and then a forfeiture claim was filed August 2017. So Godwin and his lawyer argued that there's a statute of limitations for the government seizing the fossil and that it ran out. And that's part of the National Stolen Property Act, where the government has five years from when an offense is discovered to file a forfeiture lawsuit. And so their argument is that the five years started not when the skull was seized in July 2013, but when agents first learned Godwin's name in connection to the skull in July 2012. And so the skull is currently stored at the Museum of Rockies. It's valued at $225,000. The judge of the case narrowed the scope of the trial to examine this question of when the statute of limitations expired. So nothing about the illegal smuggling or anything like that. There was a one-day trial. So what happened is in 2012, somebody called the government to report seeing the skull for sale in a Wyoming store for $320,000. This store belonged to 73-year-old Rick Rolliter, who was the largest seller of high-end Mongolian and Chinese fossils, according to government lawyers in the court filings. That's quite the infamous <laughs> title, because usually you can't legally sell things from those places. Yeah. So he pled guilty in 2014 to conspiracy to smuggle goods into the U.S. and got six months probation. The skull had somehow gotten to the U.S., I guess in 2009. So I suppose it was actually found sometime between 2000 and 2009. There was a U.S. citizen living in Japan that somehow had it. I couldn't find the details. Sold it to a man named Eric Procopi, who was actually the leading subject of a recent book that was published called The Dinosaur Artist, and who spent three months in jail and then handed over his fossils to federal prosecutors in New York. Yeah, we've talked about him before, too. I think he was in Florida, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) He sold the skull to a Florida fossil dealer, who then sold it to someone who restored it, who then sold the skull to the By Nature Gallery, which is a retailer with stores in Wyoming, Colorado, which Rolliter and Godwin co-owned. So that is how Godwin got it. The gallery transferred it to Godwin in 2012, but it's unclear if it was an actual sale. There were no import documents or certificate of authenticity. About 40% of the skull is filled with cast resin. Makes sense. You don't always get the full skull. Yeah, and if you're going to display it, you definitely want it to look like a full skull. You'd rather have that than big missing chunks. Yeah. So then a week after the trial, the U.S. District Judge, who was Reed O'Connor in Fort Worth, ruled in Godwin's favor. That's the big update. And said that the government did wait too long to file its 2017 forfeiture lawsuit. He wrote that he made no findings as to whether Mongolian law was violated. And Godwin says that he's going to put the skull on display in his home. He also said that there was unnecessary use of force in the government seizure, and he wasn't aware of any of the laws until 2012. I think that's when the crackdown kind of began, and there was more stuff in the news. More than 100 fossils have been returned to Mongolia since 2012, so that's good. And the U.S. government still plans on prosecuting cases involving stolen fossils. So this was a case 
wasn't about the fossil itself. It was about the time of forfeiture. So now he gets to keep the skull. Yeah, and like. I think he might be the only one to contest the fossil being seized. Yeah, so far, that's really interesting. So, yeah, very interesting case. I mean, I can I can kind of sympathize because there is sort of a there's a whole market in the U.S. of selling fossils. So if you're sort of used to that. You know, like somebody finds it on land and then digs it up and sells it and you prepare it and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of the way things go in the U.S. So I could see how you might not know that certain fossils might be illegal. But if your job is importing and exporting and selling them, it seems like you'd know more about it, you know. Although I'm not sure I have heard that Mongolia basically turned a blind eye for a long time and then later sort of starting cracking down, like you said. So it, it's always hard to tell, you know, what sort of assumptions people are operating under when they do it. And, you know, like assuming that they did things maliciously is... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the laws were more unclear at the time. Yeah. Plus, it sounds like it went through quite a route. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, by the time he got it? Yeah. That's true. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> In other news, Two Medicine Dinosaur Center in Bynum, Montana is building a dinosaur that's going to go on display in Savannah, Georgia next year. So Dave Trexler and a team of seven, they're working on the foam dinosaur skeleton of Amphicelius. Speaking of, Garrett. Now called Marapunisaurus. Yes. Though I don't know if they'll use that name for this display, but... Only if they want to be correct. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> The skeleton's going to be 136 feet long, which is a bit longer than you're saying the most recent estimate was, Garrett. Yeah. They definitely started making this before that paper came out, though, so you can't really blame them. Right. They've been working on it for two years, and Dave said that they took a more conservative estimate for their skeleton, not the 200-foot-long estimate. So there's 230 bones in this sculpture. Each vertebrae took about four hours of rough carving and then four hours of finishing tasks. So that's why it's taken two years to build. That's amazing. Yeah. And they used cake decorating tools to fill in the cracks with putty before putting on the coat. <laughs> and it's made of fire-resistant foam and a polyurethane coating. The neck is 38 feet long, and that's going to be animatronic. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's ambitious. It sounds awesome. Yeah. Goal is to finish in January and ship the dinosaur in pieces in February. It has to be assembled in Georgia at the museum and gallery where it's going to be displayed because it's just too large <laughs> to ship whole. And the museum is going to open on May 1st. Wow. Not too long from now, just like six months out. Yeah. And yeah, that's why Dave and a few of the others from Two Medicine Dinosaur Center, they know they had to miss SVP this year because we were <laughs> looking for them. We heard, oh, they're working on their dinosaur. Yeah, they're busy making that. And in their dinosaur center in Bynum, they have a seismosaurus, I think, mm -hmm. is what they call it. And it's like curled up because, again, it's so large that it barely fits inside. <laughs> and in other museum news, the Natural History Museum of L.A. is getting the traveling exhibition Antarctic Dinosaurs on April 3rd next year. It's going to be there until January 6th of 2020, so plenty of time for you to see it. And dinosaurs on display include Cryolophosaurus and Glacialosaurus, you know, from the Antarctic. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day. Yangtranosaurus, which was a request from Jesse Jones 9001. So thanks. Yangtranosaurus was a metriocanthosaurid theropod that lived in the Jurassic and what is now China, and it's very similar to Allosaurus. The skull of the type specimen was 2.7 feet or 82 centimeters long, and the type specimen is estimated to be about 26 feet or 8 meters long. There was a referred specimen later that was estimated to be larger at 35.4 feet or 10.8 meters long. Oof. Yeah. It's a large carnivore. It is. It had forward-facing eyes, and it was the largest predator in its habitat. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include sauropods like Mementosaurus and Omeosaurus, Stegosaurs like Chialingosaurus, Tuojiangosaurus, and Chunkingosaurus. Yangtranosaurus had a bony ridge on the nose and had hornlets and ridges, like Ceratosaurus. It was bipedal with short arms, a strong neck, and a large head with powerful jaws and serrated teeth. And it also had a long tail that was about half its length. The feet had three toes with a large claw and then a smaller fourth toe. Pretty typical of a theropod. Mm -hmm. The name Yangtranosaurus means Yangtuan lizard. It was named in 1978 by Dong and others. And it was named after Yongchuan, the area in China where it was found in the Yongchuan district in Sichuan. It was found in the Shashi Miao Formation, and it was found in June of 1977 by Sinung Chen, who was leading the Daba Reconstruction Public Works Corps to renovate the Daba Dam at the Shanyo Reservoir. Anytime you're moving a ton of land like that, it's a good opportunity to uncover some dinosaurs. Yeah. They're not always looking for it. Yeah, hopefully people notice. Yeah. So they found a complete skull and skeleton. Hmm. And the type species is Yangtranosaurus shangyoensis, and the species name refers to the Shangyo Reservoir Dam. 
The skull of the type specimen was completely preserved. Nice. Yeah. And it was the first nearly complete dinosaur skeleton that was found in China. Dong and others described the second species from the same area in 1983 was Yang Chuanosaurus magnus, based on a complete skull and skeleton. They named a separate species mainly because of the size difference and because the 1983 specimen had some fenestra in the skull. That usually should count. You got an extra hole in your head. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty significant difference. Yep. <laughs> in 2012, Carano, Benson, and Samson found that both species were the same species, though. So there's that. Yeah. And the differences may have been ontogenetic, so different growth phases. That's always the question. Like, how much do they change as they age? In 1988, Gregory S. Paul suggested that Yangtuanosaurus was the same as Metricanthosaurus, but most people don't agree with that. In 2012, Carano and others assigned a third specimen to Yangtuanosaurus shangyuensis. They found a partial postcranial skeleton without a skull in the Wujiaba quarry near Zigong City in Sichuan as part of the Shangsha Shimiao Formation. That one was founded in 1978 and listed as a new species of Sichuanosaurus called Sichuanosaurus yandoensis, but there's no description or illustration, so it was a nomum nudum. In 1983, Dong and others described it as Citronosaurus campi, but Citronosaurus is a dubious species known from only four teeth. Yeah, that's not great. In 2012, Carano and others said the specimen couldn't be assigned to Citronosaurus because the holotype had no diagnostic characteristics. Plus, the specimen didn't have any teeth preserved, so then they couldn't even compare it with the four teeth of the holotype. <laughs> In 2001, Dan Chair found that the specimen was a new taxon, informally known as Sichuanoraptor dongai, and that the third species of Sichuanosaurus, which was Sichuanosaurus zigonensis, should also be grouped with it. And Sichuanosaurus zigonensis was first described in 1993 by Gao. The 2012 Carano study found that the same third young Tuanosaurus specimen and the Sichuanosaurus Tsigonensis could not be the same species, though, because they had no shared distinct features, and Sichuanosaurus Tsigonensis came from the Xiaosha Ximiao Formation, which is the lower part of the Shangsha Ximiao Formation. And in Chinese, Xia is kind of down or after or below, and Shang is kind of up or before or above. It's kind of confusing. Just depends. Anyway, a phylogenetic analysis found that the third specimen was most closely related to Yangtuanosaurus shangyuensis, so it was assigned to that species. Citronosaurus zygonensis was found to be closely related and then became the second species, Yangtuanosaurus Yangtuanosaurus zygonensis. So, very confusing. Anyway, four Yangtuanosaurus zygonensis specimens have been found, and that includes the teeth, hind limbs, and more, from the Xiaosha Ximiao formation in the Dashanpu dinosaur quarry. So all that's to say that there are two species of Yangtuanosaurus. And for a while they were called Sichuanosaurus? Not exactly. Sichuanosaurus was its own thing, and that different specimens or species merged with other dinosaur names. Okay, so there were, some of them used to be called Szechuanosaurus, but then they got pulled out to be Yangtuanosaurus? Yes. So then the two valid species of Yangtuanosaurus are Yangtuanosaurus shangyuensis and Yangtuanosaurus zigonensis. So four Yangtuanosaurus zigonensis specimens have been found, and that includes the teeth, hind limbs, and more from the Xiaosha Ximiao formation in the Dashanpu dinosaur quarry. There's potentially a third species of Yangtuanosaurus, which would be Yangtuanosaurus hepigensis. That's named by Gao in 1992, but that is considered now by many to be Sinraptor. Yangtuanosaurus fossils were 
almost lost in a flood in 1981. Water rose and covered the laboratory floor at the Chongqing Museum of Natural History in China. But luckily the waters receded in time and actually technicians were ready to swim to save the fossils if they needed to. (laughs) That's a tricky thing to say. Those are heavy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And our fun fact of the day is that Garden Park, Colorado, about 30 miles southwest of Colorado Springs, is one of the sites where Cope and Marsh both funded quarries. So it's kind of one of the key Uh bone wars sites. One of the most contentious? Yeah. So Cope gets credit for Camarasaurus in a quarry nicknamed Cope's Nipple, although it's also sometimes called Saurian Hill. What? Which is really my favorite part of this (laughs) detail. I think it's just like the geological formation looks a little bit like a nipple, so they call it Cope's Nipple. He also recovered Amphicelius Atlas and Amphicelius Fragilimus, now called Marapunasaurus Fragilimus, nearby. And it's where he named Lelaps, which is now Dryptosaurus, as well as tons of other dinosaurs, all of which ended up in the American Museum of Natural History collection. But then in the same area, Marsh gets credit for even more dinosaurs, including Diplodocus, Allosaurus, Haplocanthosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Stegosaurus, and the modestly named Othnelia (laughs) after himself, which is now considered to be undiagnostic. So I guess he won that quarry. He did, yeah. But Cope got uh, Cope's nipple out of it, so who really won? (laughs) I think Cope did. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for cool rewards. Thanks again, and until next time. around you can find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader